three research papers for us to peruse. Come along and listen. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. We're going to cover three papers. Let's go ahead and do it. This is Gavin and I's take on a few of the recent papers that we've looked at. We're going to look at three papers um, in this particular episode. We're looking at a paper called Association Between Tracheal Intubation During Adult In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest and Survival. And then another paper which is entitled Protective Mechanical Ventilation in United Kingdom Critical Care Units, a Multicenter Audit. And Video Laryngoscopy versus Direct Laryngoscopy on Successful First Pass Orotracheal Intubation Among ICU Patients, a Randomised Controlled Trial. And of course my dog, who never barks, chooses this time to bark during the day. So uh, please forgive me if you can hear the dog barking in the background. Both dogs barking in the background. <laughs> my dogs never bark. Okay, but at least... Does he pussy meow? Uh, is it what, sorry? Does it pussy meow? Or have you not got one? No, I've got a cat. I'll put it on my lap and it'll be able to do that as well for us. We'll get all the sound effects, honestly. <laughs> it, it's just like a jungle in here. <clears throat> right, okay. So, um, I'm going to start by talking about the paper called Association Between Tracheal Intubation During Adult In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest and Survival, which was in uh, JAMA in 2017 and the authors of this are Anderson et al and I'm going to say et al a lot because there are an awful lot of authors to this paper as there seem to be a lot of papers um, so this um, the clinical question in this paper and um, I think Gavin some of the results on this are very very interesting and I'm going to pick your brains in a little while about some of the recent ALS stuff and the resuscitation council's guidelines because I'd be interested to know not being as updated as I should be what their take is on this but the clinical question in this particular study was that the aim of the current study was to evaluate the association between tracheal intubation during adult in hospital cardiac arrest and survival to hospital discharge using something called the multi-center get with the guidelines resuscitation registry and that is a prospective quality improvement registry of in-hospital cardiac arrest in united states hospitals it also aimed to assess whether this association was modified by the first documented rhythm be it shockable versus non-shockable or other patient and event factors explored in pre-specified subgroups the design of this was a retrospective observational matched cohort study which analysed data from the registry we've just spoken about um, and I, I, I always confess to my ignorance with research I had to look at the matched cohort study which I will try and explain later and hopefully uh, Gavin and I can help you understand it as well because it was something that baffled me for a little moment. So the population to this study included adult patients, this is the inclusion criteria, um, who had an index cardiac arrest for which they received chest compression, so they needed to be above 18 years of age. And the exclusion criteria included a few, one of which made me smile a little. Um, patients who had an invasive airway in place at the time of the cardiac arrest weren't included. An invasive airway included tracheal tube, tracheostomy, laryngeal mask airway, or other invasive airways. Uh, also... <laughs> Also excluded were hospital visitors and employees. <laughs> Sorry. I just got this image of these people keeling over left, right and centre in various US hospitals. And not um, being and main... <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, we can't. Sorry, you're not in the trial. We can't resuscitate you. Um, but for the main analysis patients, there were missing data on tracheal intubation. Um, there were various covariates um, that they didn't want to include. Um, race was not um, one that was um, included there. Um, it these um, some of this missing data also included patients with missing or consistent data, but that's that's small points. So the intervention was uh, tracheal intubation was defined as insertion of a tracheal or tracheostomy tube during the arrest, and the end of the arrest was when the patient had a return of spontaneous circulation, or when the resuscitation was terminated without return of spontaneous circulation. So when the patient died or was called to be dead. Um, and the time of tracheal intubation was defined as the interval in whole minutes from loss of pulses until the tracheal tube was inserted. Now, the um, primary outcome um, 
the primary outcome, sorry, I've just lost my page. Yeah, the primary outcome was uh, survival to hospital discharge. And the secondary outcomes were return of spontaneous circulation and favorable functional outcome at hospital discharge. Um, and ROSC was defined as no further need for chest compression sustained for at least 20 minutes. And a cerebral performance category score of one or two was considered a good functional outcome consistent with current Utstein guidelines. And a little note, Utstein guidelines is a set of guidelines for uniform reporting of cardiac arrest, uh, which was first proposed in 1991. Um, so you can read more about that, Utstein guidelines. But anyway, a category score of one is mild or no neurological deficit, or two, moderate or cerebral disability. Um, now the results, let's get to the results of this particular trial. So the study population included 108,079 patients from 668 hospitals. So numbers wise, this is a big, big study. The median age was 69 years and 45,073 of those patients were female, 42%. And I think this is something that Gavin and I spoke about recently is that um, the, the male population um, seemed to be a uh, feature more largely in this kind of, um, this kind of event. Among the population, 69.9% uh, were intubated with 63.3% of all patients and 94% 94.8% of those intubated intubated within the first 15 minutes um, so if you haven't been intubated within 15 minutes then it's highly likely that you're not going to be the median time to tracheal intubation in those intubated within the first 15 minutes was five minutes among 88,749 patients with an initial non-shockable rhythm, 69% were intubated within 15 minutes with a median time to intubation of five minutes. Um, so let's just see. So we had 69% intubated within 50 minutes with a non-shockable rhythm. Um, and then in the those with a shockable rhythm, 53.5% uh, were intubated within 15 minutes. So if you uh, had VT or VF, you were less likely to be intubated within 15 minutes. And the median time to intubation again was five minutes. Um, so um, most of the, if you were gonna be intubated, most of them were intubated within five minutes. So the primary outcome, and the primary outcome remember was survival to hospital discharge. Um, a total of 24,256 patients survived to hospital discharge. That's 22.4% of those patients in the study actually survived to hospital discharge. Um, and patients intubated within the first 15 minutes had a lower survival uh, compared with those not intubated. So in the unadjusted analysis, if you didn't have a tube put down, um, you were more likely to survive than those patients that did have a tube put down within the first 15 minutes. Um, and you can, there's confidence intervals and things, um, but basically it was 17% uh, versus 33.2%. And that's definitely had a p-value of uh, 0.001. Among the study population, 67,540 or 62.5% had ROSC. Uh, the pro proportion of patients with ROSC was lower in those intubated within the first 15 minutes compared with those not intubated. So again, um, not being intubated seems to be more favourable. Um, there were some, um, oh, sorry, and of, of the of the 103,448 patients, all of, in other words, without missing data on, on functional outcome, 16% had a good functional output, and that's on their um, their measures that they uh, used earlier. So now, so now, Gavin, let's see if you can help me on this one because now we went into something called time-dependent propensity score-matched analysis. Any clues? <laughs> well, I, I think my understanding of propensity matching is basically you, you've got so you, they'll try and find e patients um, that are equivalent. So, so for the intubated patients, they're trying to find a, an equivalent patient that wasn't intubated. So I, I don't know how they did that. I haven't looked into it. But um, it might be that they have to be the same age or around the same age. They had to be in the same sex. They had to have the same admission um, <clears throat> criteria, the same diagnosis. Um, 
but the only difference being that the the intervention that they received. Um, so as close as possible, they are trying to compare um, like for like. Um, yeah. So ra- rather than trying to do that for a whole cohort, that they'll I would guess they'll try to in- individually individually match each patient to an equivalent. Yeah. Um, and use that as a, as a control. <laughs> so the key, the, the key in this particular study is time dependent. So if you weren't intubated at four minutes, we want to try and match you to somebody else who who was intubated at four minutes and just exactly. Did, yeah. Okay. Exactly. So, so you're not having this um, it, people turning around and basically saying, well, the patients that um, were intubated at five minutes were not the same group of patients that, were intub- that weren't intubated at two minutes or, or whatever. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's some sort of matching for that. Um, the, the other thing I just noticed um, was the time frame. So this, the cohort that they've used run from 2000 to 2014 and uh, <coughs> we've had several iterations of um, national and international guidelines since then so they come out every five years so we're talking potentially three changes in ALS guidelines over that time um, so you, you could argue that in in terms of um, time frame they are not I'm trying to remember the correct term now they are not. Um, <clears throat> if you've got a patient that's resuscitated in two thousand, as opposed to a patient in two thousand and fourteen, have those patients actually got the same outcome? Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. Let, let's we'll come to that later because that that's you know we can talk about weakness of the study as well. Let's let's just um, uh, just for for argument's sake, well, let's the Bible that is wiki says that uh, propensity. Um, score matching um, is a statistical matching technique that attempts to estimate the effect of a treatment policy or other intervention by accounting for the covariates that predict receiving that predict receiving the treatment and and in this case that is time so I'm going to leave it at that Um, if you want to look into more of that then um, but I think Gavin's actually um, explained that reasonably well so anyway 43,314 intubated patients. So the intubated patients they're calling here the exposed group matched one to one to 43,314 patients, exactly the same number of patients without intubation during the same minute, the unexposed groups, although these patients could have been intubated later. For patients in the exposed group, i.e. the intubated patients, the median time to tracheal intubation was four minutes. Among the unexposed groups, i.e. those that weren't intubated, 68.2% were intubated at some time point after the matching. So for these patients, the time to intubation was 8 minutes. In this match cohort, survival was lower among the exposed group than among the unexposed group. So having done this matching and trying to get the match together, we still have this lower survival um, amongst those patients that have been intubated. Um, so it was 16.3% versus 94%. Are you exploding there, Gavin? Are you okay? Because you sounded like something's just, something's just you've damaged yourself there. I tried to cough into my shirt rather than coughing into the microphone. (laughs) It's all right. It sounded painful, whatever happened. Um, The proportion of patients with ROSC was lower among the exposed group than among the unexposed group. Um, So that was 57.8% versus 59.3%. So again, those patients in which we got return of spontaneous circulation, it was less likely to happen in those that was intubated than in those that weren't intubated. And eventually, and also good functional outcome was also lower among the exposed group than among the unexposed group. So even the long term, um, those patients that weren't intubated did better than those patients that were. And the p-values on all of these, I won't read the confidence intervals because it's just not something you're going to retain while you're driving in your car or on your run or walking your dog or whatever you're doing. But just take my word for it that the p-values are all significant with these as well. Now, they then moved on to a subgroup analysis. Um, This was breaking the groups down slightly. 
Um, and again, I've got a little definition of a subgroup analysis in the context of design analysis of experiments refers to looking for pattern in a subset of the subject. So it's, it's as it sounds, really. Um, so there was a significant interaction for initial rhythm such that tracheal intubation was more strongly associated with a lower likelihood of survival in those with an initial shockable rhythm compared with those in an initial non-shockable rhythm. So again, if you're intubating somebody, they're more likely to survive if they haven't got a if they've got a non-shockable rhythm. Um, in those without pre-existing respiratory insufficiency, intubation was associated with lower likelihood of survival, whereas no association was seen in the, those with pre-existing respiratory insufficiency. Um, so, if if you if you haven't got a previous respiratory problem um, and you're intubated, um, you are less likely to survive than those patients with a pre-existing respiratory problem. So just talk about some of the um, author's conclusions here. And, and Gavin, if you want to hop in at any point, if you've got any comments, then by all means do when you're not exploding, obviously. Um, so the author's conclusions that this large multi-center retrospective observational match cohort study, tracheal intubation at any minute within the first 15 minutes during in-hospital cardiac arrest compared with no intubation during that minute was associated with a 3% absolute reduction and a 16% relative reduction in survival to hospital discharge. Intubation was also associated with a 2% absolute reduction and 3% relative reduction in ROSC and a 3% absolute reduction and 22% relative reduction in good functional outcome at hospital discharge. So there's, I mean, there's, there's a, 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 a clear message here, isn't there, that, um, that not intubating in this study um, is definitely something that um, needs to be thought about that we shouldn't then just be banging tubes straight into people and they do go on to talk about another couple of studies as well um, I haven't got the titles of these studies but he does talk about an observational study from um, nearly 2,000 patients with an in-hospital cardiac arrest found that tracheal intubation during the cardiac arrest was associated with increased mortality um, a meta-analysis from 2013 of observational out-of-hospital cardiac arrest studies found that tracheal intubation compared with basic airway management was not associated with ROSC but was associated with decreased survival. Now that's out-of-hospital cardiac arrest um, as opposed to the, the study I've just mentioned and the study we're talking about which are in-hospital cardiac arrest. And they do talk about some multiple mechanisms that could explain the causal relationship between tracheal intubation and poor outcomes. It could be that tracheal intubation might lead to a prolonged interruption in chest compressions you and I have both been there, Gav, haven't we? You know, sometimes people take far too long faffing about trying to get that tube down when perhaps they shouldn't be. Um, it might lead to hyperventilation and hyperoxia, which are associated with poor outcomes. Again, you go to an arrest situation, you get a tube in, and we all get a bit excited. The adrenaline gets going a bit. We, we bag too hard, we bag too fast, and we know that both of those things are bad for the patient. It could delay other interventions such as defibrillation or epinephrine adrenaline administration because we're doing other things. We don't think about those things. Um, adrenaline, I think everyone keeps saying it's days and numbered. Let's see. Um, there could be delays in time to successive intubation, which could result in inadequate ventilation or oxygenation by other means as well. And unrecognized esophageal intubation or dislodgement of the tube during the cardiac arrest could also lead to fate fatal outcomes. There are some beneficial effects of intubation and he talks about including better control of ventilation and oxygenation as well as protection from aspiration. Um, however, once an advanced airway is established, chest compressions may be provided in a more continuous fashion. So there are, there are both pros and cons for this. So ultimately, um, the final comment is that tracheal intubation was associated much more strongly with decreased survival among patients with an initial shockable rhythm compared with those with an initial non-shockable rhythm. Um, so the rhythm, very important as well. Um, and these findings may indicate that the potential detrimental effects of intubation are more pronounced in patients with a shockable rhythm 
for whom other interventions such as early defibrillation are more relevant. Now, before we go on and, and talk about this more generally, Gavin, I just mentioned some weaknesses, uh, certainly some that I've identified and they've identified as well. First of all, it's US only based, um, so it's it's all around America. Um, there are other parts of the world that need to be considered, obviously. Um, they, they say themselves that they're un, unable to identify some of the potential co-founders because of some um, spurious results within the, the data collecting system that they used. The data on the unsuccessful intubation attempts was not, ava not available, um, potentially introducing a bias, and data was missing on at least one variable for 25% of the patients. So there are some weaknesses there as well. So Gavin, what's, what's the Resuscitation Council saying these days about intubate or not to intubate? Because when certainly when I was doing ALS and doing my instructor's course um, a couple of years ago, it was very much, it, it wasn't something necessarily they were advocating quite as heavily as they have done in the past. Uh, well, it's certainly been um, massively de-emphasised. Um, uh, I think part of the issue um one is um, people getting distracted with dealing with the airway management and not actually dealing with quality CPR. And over the last 10 years, uh, I think it's probably about um, 2005, where really the, the big emphasis came on, came on to um, reducing hands-off time, um, <clears throat> maximum um, no-flow, and um, rapid defibrillation and short pulse checks. Um, and all the that really makes um, intubation during cardiac arrest much more difficult and much more likely to distract from the priorities of quality CPR and minimising hands-off time. Um, so that that certainly um, happened over the last 10, 10 years or so. Um, and and the use of LMA has been become much more. Um, what's the word? has been much more emphasised um, rather than using endotracheal tubes. I mean, the other issue with airway management is often airway management was being done by relatively junior people, um, mm. <clears throat> probably without um, calimetric or um, entitled CO2 waveform, high incidence of esophageal intubation, um, people that are junior trying to intubate and possibly taking one or one or two minutes to try and do so and stopping CPR and the progress. So there were lots and lots of things there that were um, di that were getting in the way of delivering quality CPR. Yeah. Um, how, however, I don't, I don't necessarily think that intubation necessarily has to interfere with um, quality CPR. Uh, certainly for myself, um, I'd probably intubate 20 or so people a year um, during cardiac arrest as, as inpatients on my site. Um, and I haven't actually stopped CPR to intubate somebody for the best part of two years. Nowadays, the pulse check is five seconds. The, the emphasis in the, in the resuscitation guidelines that if you were going to intubate, you do it in the pulse check time. Five seconds is impossible. It's absolutely impossible. Um, and with the um, <coughs> charging doing CPR, the, the, the whole t potential window for you to stop CPR to intubate is largely gone. Um, so there's good reason to de-emphasize intubation. Um, however, I haven't stopped in, um, CPR to intubate anybody for a couple of years. I can do it with the CPR ongoing. Um, <coughs> but you're but, probably, to be fair, you're probably... Um in the minority i would think of most people who attend a cardiac arrest and go up to the head end i think maybe not in the minority but you're certainly um there will be a fair proportion of people who would go to a, a the head end who probably wouldn't be able to do that because the yeah. target's moving in front of you isn't it, it does yeah it's, uh, I, I don't pretend it is easy uh, but in, in some respects i don't actually find it easier than trying to stop cpr and intubate it as quickly as possible there, there's yeah. so much time pressure to try and do that and and get that tubing in 10 or 15 seconds that, that, that's actually a lot of pressure it, with cpr ongoing and not stopping the cpr if you can't get if you can't get the tube in without stopping then you simply don't put the tube in um do you always use a bougie yeah always yeah <coughs> okay okay well um 
I, I'm, I'm aware that I've already taken probably 20 minutes of time to do that, but I think that was a very interesting study and well worth reading. Um, sometimes you look at these papers and they seem a bit dry, but if you can bear with it and get through to the end, actually, I learned an awful lot from that one. So, Gavin, why don't we move on to the protective mechanical ventilation? In... Oh, there were so many holes I wanted to tear in that. You're not letting me play. No, please go on. If there's more <laughs> you to say... <laughs> well, I had a couple of things. So, I mean, one of them was that the, the actual um, cohort was used from 2000 to 2015. Yeah, and as we just discussed, the emphasis of resuscitations completely changed from 2000 to 2015. And I, I, I do question whether if you're matching somebody that was not intubated in 2015 and someone that was intubated in 2000 I, I i'm not convinced that that is comparing apples with apples no. um that, that could be a very very different um emphasis on the on the priorities in resuscitation in that time i don't think they're the same um and, and certainly for myself i find probably at least caught the patients i go to in cardiac arrest as inpatients they're airway soiled sticking an lma in and bagging them isn't an option you've got to clear it um, yeah. A lot of the time, you clear it; it just fills back up again. And the only way to protect the airway is to put a tube in. Um, <clears throat> so, in those patients, I, I, uh, those airways are already flooded. You've ha you've had to put the tube in because they're already flooded, and I think that's a big potential confounder. Okay. So there are holes to be picked, as there are in any study. Um, but having said that, I'm I'm fairly. I'm fairly impressed by the fact that actually um, sticking a tube down isn't necessarily the right thing to do. I, I, certainly, you need to think about it, don't you? Yeah. You need to think, yeah. is this something I actually need to do? Um, I was with uh, a doctor only the other day who had um, an eye gel into a patient um, who hadn't done particularly well, and he was asking me, should I take the eye gel out and replace it with an ET tube? We didn't have a consultant anywhere nearby, and I said, well, the chest is rising and falling, the airway looks clean to me, I think you should leave well alone. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes that should be the way we go. Right, no more. Prote your turn. Protective mechanical ventilation in the United Kingdom critical care units. Away okay. you go. Okay. So this is another et al, because there's quite a few people on this. So this is by Newell et al. Um, is, I think it was released at the end of um, 2016. I th was it a Jax? Was it Jax? Yeah, I think it was a Jax um, uh, publication. So yeah, was. Th this, this was an audit done in the southwest of England. Um, <coughs> um, um, I got down the question is um, how compliant are intensive care units in the southwest of England to lung protective ventilation and uh, low stroke high PEEP titration um, based on the ARDSNET protocol. Um, so this really isn't necessarily an audit of ARDS patients. It's an audit of whether we're applying the ARDSNET ventilation protocol to all patients that are receiving mandatory ventilation. Um, so as an update to that, so in 2000, there was the big ARDSNET study that was comparing 6 mils per kilo with 12 mils per kilo tidal volume ventilation in ARDS patients. Um, and for the remember, I think it was something like an absolute 6% reduction in mortality um, just by reducing the um, tidal volume. And over the years, there's been a slow creep of applying this 6 mils per kilo ventilation to everybody rather than waiting for people to develop ARDS. Um, the evidence for it is limited in terms of um, whether we've got our ICTs looking at um, lung protective ventilation in non-ARDS patients. Um, <clears throat> but f physiologically, it, it's, a, it's a sound principle. Um, so that's what these guys were looking at. So it's an observational study. It wasn't a randomised study. Um, uh, it w involved, oh, I think it was, was it seven, seven intensive care units in one region and nine in another, so 16 altogether. Um, <clears throat> so there was about 80 patients involved in that study, and they just looked at a snapshot in one 24-hour period across all of those units. Um, and they looked at the ideal body weights for those patients and what they should have been ventilated at and took two hourly observations of their tidal volumes um, and had a look at how compliant they were with that. Um, 
the inclusions were fairly broad. Um, so they're, they're all adult intensive care units. Um, it had to be patients receiving mandatory ventilation. So anybody spontaneous breathing wasn't included in the study. Um, one of the units excluded patients if they needed tight CO2 control, which I think was a neurocenter. And I think there was one or two other patients that got excluded for that reason. Um, but otherwise, it was a fairly broad inclusion. Um, so... The other part of the study was looking at the high-low tidal volume, sorry, the high-low PEEP titration based on the Arntonet study. Um, that wasn't really something that was particularly pertinent in terms of um, outcomes from what I remember in, in that study. So really the key thing was the 6.5 mils per kilo. I'm not quite sure why. But um, also part of the um, our next study was um, keeping, um, I can't remember the exact level, it was 30 or 35, but keeping plateau pressures on the ventilator below 30 centimetres of water. Um, for some reason, they decided not to do that in this study. They've just stuck to the tidal volume. But we know it's not just volume that can cause um, lung injury, it's pressure as well. But they decided um, uh, to stick with the 6.5 mils per kilo. So what was the outcome? So there were about 80 patients in the study um, and in the end they found that the compliance to um, the 6.5 mils per kilo ventilation was about 34%, so pretty bad really. Um, <clears throat> and the mean tidal volume was um, above 7 mils, it was about 7 to 7.5 mils per kilo on average. Um, one of the differences they did found, find across the region was... Um, there was uh, one part of the region tended to use more volume control ventilation. Another region tended to use more um, pressure control um, um, forms of ventilation. And the <coughs> areas that used volume control ventilation did seem to have a significantly reduced um, um, tidal volume compared to the pressure control areas. So it, it just suggests that um, volume control um, <coughs> excuse me <coughs> gives you more consistent um, six six and a half mil per kilo target volume um, than using a pressure control vo um, form of ventilation. Um, lost my train of thought now. <laughs> You're onto the significant difference in mean tidal volumes now. Yeah, so um, so the mean tidal volumes significant difference was uh, ooh, a huge p-value of zero point zero 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 one um, between the um, whether they used um, volume control or pressure control, um, <clears throat> but that still being said, um, the significant portion of the patients still weren't achieving their um, their, their six mils per kilo. In strengths and weaknesses, um, it's um, it, it was a large number of units, so it was about nineteen in intensive care units. Um, there were largely general intensive care units rather than tertiary centres. Um, so it's something that you could probably apply relatively widely for the UK in general, and um, whether it applied to other systems in the world, I don't know. Um, but that that was one of its key strengths. Um, it's not not particularly clear why they only focused on the um, on the plateau pressure. So, sorry, on the on the um, tidal volume rather than looking at the plateau pressure as well. Mm -hmm. it, it may have been a finding that the patients on pressure control ventilation had a lower plateau pressure because that's what you're targeting with that form of ventilation as opposed to the tidal volume. Um, so you know, there's a potential that you, you had six. Of, six of one and half a dozen of the other <clears throat> um the other thing was the the staff on all the units were aware that the audit was taking place so um there is a potential that there was a hawthorne effect um going on and um the true tidal volume culture in those units may have been higher um and it was the the actual uh, institution of the um, audit that made the tidal tidal volumes of of the volume that they found <clears throat> but that, that's not something we'd ever be able to um d decipher really okay. so the, the the key thing was that compliance to six mil per kilo ventilation is pretty poor okay. i don't know what your thoughts are on that 
Um, I, I, I think cer- certainly from my experience in the unit I'm currently working at that we are very, very aware of the six mils per kilo. Like you say, it is applied pretty much to all our patients now, whether or not they've got an ARDS. We, we don't actually see that much ARDS as a unit. We're, we're a relatively small unit. Um, but I think all our patients, we, we work on the six to eight mils per kilo. Um, and I think our compliance is pretty good. But one of the reasons our compliance is very good is that um, all our ventilators um, are now attached to a computer that monitors them hour by hour, um, and um, those figures are audited on the round by the consultants every ward round, and we do get quite twitchy if they start to move outside of those parameters. Um, I think, like you say in this study, it's interesting that plateau pressures didn't seem to play a part at all. Um, And um, I think it's also interesting that um, there's no recognition that achieving a tidal volume of so many mils per kilo um, is not always the best thing to do for that patient. I don't know what you think to that. Um, I... For myself, on the whole, I think it usually is the right rate to go. Obviously, outside um, someone that's had a neurological insult, um, head injury, post-cardiac arrest, those kind of patients where you are trying to keep their CO2 in a lower range. Um, and that I certainly think we, we've gone away from, or hopefully are slowly moving away from um, nor, normoxia and trying to... Um, normalize everything on our patients and you know whether your co2 is six and a half or seven is probably of no clinical consequence whatsoever however increasing the tidal volume to treat that 0.5 raise in in their um in their um, pco2 may well have implications for the patient um so i i certainly hope that we're we're being um a little little less cautious with um, CO2 control on the majority of patients these days. Um, although most of the time, f- from my own clinical experience, when the ventilation is, has gone above 6 mils per kilo, invariably the, 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 the um, p- entitled CO2 or the um, PCO2 has gone up by 0.5, and that's why they've made the difference. And then I've had to re-educate whether that, um, bringing that CO2 down is of any real clinical consequence whatsoever. But the um, rise in the tidal volume probably is. <clears throat> okay. So let's move on to the next one. The next one and the last one. Um, and this is one that um, was published in JAMA 2017. And this is video laryngoscopy versus direct laryngoscopy on successful first past oral tracheal intubation amongst ICU patients. Authors are Lescaru et al. Um, and the clinical question really is routine use of video laryngoscopy for oral tracheal intubation of patients in ICU increases the frequency of successful first pass intubation compared with the use of the Macintosh direct laryngoscope. So the big debate that's been going on ad nauseum for several years um, basically is VL better than DL. And the design was a non-blinded multi-center open label two parallel group RCT. So non-blinded open label, of course, because you can't really do it without anybody knowing what you're doing, can you? Because it's a little bit obvious. The setting is seven ICUs in France. So it's our French colleagues who are involved with this. Uh, the inclusion criteria, uh, ICU admission and need for intubation to allow mechanical ventilation. There were several exclusion criteria, I haven't mentioned them all, um, but uh, there was contraindications to intubation, so something like an unstable spinal lesion, um, insufficient time to include and randomise, less than 18 years old, pregnant or breastfeeding, and several others as well. The intervention was uh, using the McGrath Mac video laryngoscope, so the VL, Um, And they chose this device because intubation technique is similar to the Macintosh um, and a previous study suggests benefits for ICU intubation. The small size of the device enabled bedside use and cost was relatively low. So the procedure was that you pre-ox with a BVM at 15 litres for at least three minutes or vent in a non-invasive mode providing 100% oxygen or high flow nasal cannula at 60 litres a minute with 100% for three minutes. Etomidate or ketamine stroke sucks or rock. Um, tube position confirmed with capnography over four or more breaths 
um, Selic maneuver or cricoid pressure was discretion of the clinician. And if first pass failure, then following technique was chosen according to French guidelines. So that's all fairly standard for your um, RSI sequence. And the control was the same, but using the Macintosh laryngoscope. So we're using VL versus DL. Um, the outcome. Um, the primary outcome was a proportion of patients with successful first pass orotracheal intubations and this was defined based on a normal appearing waveform of the partial pressure of end tidal exhale carbon dioxide curve over four or more breathing cycles. The secondary out outcomes, and there were a few of these, a uh, proportion of patients with successful orotracheal intubation at any attempt, total time to successful intubation, grade of glottis visibility, percentage of glottic opening score, proportion of patients with difficult intubations, and there are more, and I'm not going to say too many more, but some of the more important ones, ICU length of stay, ICU mortality and 28-day mortality, fairly, and duration of mechanical ventilation, fairly standard for this type of study. The sample size, um, they decided they needed 185 patients in each arm, assuming a first pass success rate with a DL of 65%. Um, and um, they wanted this to increase to uh, with a VL to increase to 80%. So they decided 185 in each arm to get the, the pertinent power to the study. So what were the results? Well, the primary outcomes, 366 patients were successfully intubated. There was no significant difference with first pass intubation. So with VL, um, it was a 67.7%, DL 70.3%. The frequency of first pass failure was not significantly different with uh, VL, um, both after adjustment for operator expertise um, and uh, after adjustment for the uh, Makuka score. And I'll tell you what the Makuka score is because I didn't know what the Makuka score was. Um, this is uh, made up of a Malampati score of three or four um, apnea syndrome, so obstructive, um, some cervical limitation, mouth opening limitations, coma, um, hypoxemia, and operator not being an anesthesiologist. So any of those, if they were involved, then obviously there were some confounding factors there, and they were accounting for that basically for inexperience and the patient being a bit more difficult. So um, just to uh, reiterate there, so uh, frequency of first pass failure was not significant between the two, even when you account for some of the problems that you may encounter during intubation. So secondary outcomes, VL group had better glottis visualization, a glottis opening score, and the bougie was used more often with uh, the VL group. Most first intubation attempts were by non-experts. Um, and not surprisingly, first intubation attempts were successful more often when performed by experts. Well, you would hope so, wouldn't you? The median duration of intubation of three minutes did not differ between the groups. And the proportion of patients with severe life-threatening complications was higher in the video laryngoscopy group, um, but not significantly so. So we weren't necessarily using VL on um, the patients that were sicker. The duration of mechanical ventilation, ICU length of stay, sepsis-related organ failure assessment score on day one, uh, the SOFA score basically, and the same on day two. ICU mortality and 28-day mortality did not differ between the groups. So actually, um, using VL as opposed to DL made no significant difference to the long-term outcomes. Um, it didn't seem to make any significant difference to first pass rates at all. And I just want to read word for word some of the author's comments and conclusions because I think um, it, his words were the best. So improved glottis visualization with video laryngoscopy did not translate into a higher success rate for first pass intubation because tracheal catheterization under indirect vision was more difficult in keeping with earlier data. The better visualization of the glottis with video laryngoscopy might lead to a false impression of safety when orotracheal intubation is performed by non-experts. The subgroup analysis did not identify factors associated with life-threatening complications with video laryngoscopy. In addition, poor alignment, poorer alignment of the pharyngeal axis, laryngeal axis and mouth opening despite good glottis visualization by video laryngoscopy can lead to mechanical upper airway obstruction and faster progression to hypoxemia. And then finally, use of a gum elastic bougie during the first intubation attempt was more common with video laryngoscopy. 
Due to the indirect visualization of the glottis with video laryngoscopy, some manufacturers recommend using an intubation stylet. And among patients in the ICU requiring intubation, video laryngoscopy compared with direct laryngoscopy did not improve first pass orotracheal intubation rates and was associated with higher rates of severe life threatening complications. So, the strengths of this it was a multi center RCT. Um, and there was an objective primary outcome measure which they used was, was capnography as well. The weaknesses, and this is something that the study recognizes itself, is that uh, they only used one single type of laryngoscope, that others weren't assessed, and other blades might have had a different outcomes. Most of the first attempts were made by non-experts. Now, I don't necessarily see that as a weakness, um, because to me that's realistic, that's what happens. Um, and blinding uh, wasn't feasible. And I go back, not most of first attempts are made by non-experts, but a lot of first attempts are made by non-experts in reality. Um, that's when, um, and what do you need to be to be an expert intubator? I think the jury's still out on that one, Gavin, isn't it really? Yeah, I mean, I, I've read a, a few papers on the subject, but I, I'm not going to get into that. I think it's a little bit too contentious. Um, but one of the things that came up in that paper, the experience intubators, so I think the <coughs> the inexperienced intubators, the first part success was about 65%. In the experienced intubators, it was 90 But in the experienced intubators, whether they used DL or VL, again, made no difference. So, yep. which I thought quite interesting, uh, and then one of the other um, points you've already raised, I think something like in of all the failures, um, or, or failure to um, um, pass on first attempt, the seventy percent of the failures in the VL were inability to pass the tube with a view, whereas with the DL cases, seventy percent of the time they couldn't get the tube in because they couldn't get a view at all. Yeah. Um, and as you intimated, and as the the authors have already said, that potentially those patients where you have got a view on the video laryngoscope and just and can give that you that false sense that of um, safety that you got the view, so you should be able to get the tube in. And you know, I, I would imagine I can just see people sitting there thinking, "Now nah, I've got it, I've got it. Give me a bit longer. I'm going to get it in. I can see. I've got. I can see the cords." Yeah. And of course, they don't. And I think that's the big danger with it. And <clears throat> And suggests why they had the um, significantly um, higher rates of um, severe complications in the in the VL group. Yeah, and and I and I think I mean the study wasn't designed to do so, but I think they they, they use several times they use uh, use the phrase non-experts. Um, you know, it, it makes no it makes no definition between it doesn't break that down enough for me to who was using which particular device. You know, um, it, it could be that. Um, because again, from my um, from my experience, it's the non-experts that will start with the direct laryngoscopy, and it's those that are more expert that will then move on to start using the video laryngoscopes. Um, from my experience, is that, is that something you've seen as well? Um, well, in, ter in terms of this particular paper, um, the the experts and non-experts were also stratified, so there should have been a balance. Um, in who was using VL and DL, right. um, we, and it did show it didn't show any difference. In terms of um, my own work, we've got almost no access to video laryngoscopy in in my trust. Um, we've only really got um, air tracks, which don't get used. Um, <clears throat> we are about to invest in CMAX, um, which are your more traditional shaped blade, um, <clears throat> and it'll be interesting to see. Um, what changes come about with that but um i i think it, it says a great deal in, in the that it, simply having the video laryngoscope doesn't necessarily confer safety i mean i, th I think it's also for listeners to important to point out that there's two types of video laryngoscope so that the type of blade that was used on the mcgraph is supposed to be more like the shape of uh, a traditional Macintosh blade. Now, I have seen comments on Twitter that they feel it's actually probably about halfway and it's not quite the, the same shape as um, as the traditional Mac and it is slightly more curved. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the other type of scope and the, and the type of scopes that initially came out classically, or oh, what was it called? Uh, the glide scope, for instance, is what's called a hyperangulated blade. So it's very, very curved. 
um, and it literally looks around the corner. And to try and intubate with that is a very different technique. Um, so there's often been, a, when people have been discussing VLDL, uh, no, what's best, um, there's often been this debate, well, VL isn't all the same. You've got two types and you need to be um, comparing um, apples and pears. And this this one does compare apples with apples, uh, the, um, theoretically, in the sense that the blades are supposed to be of a similar design, just one's got a camera on the end of it. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I mean, I, I think this discussion is going to go on for some time, isn't it, about, you know, VL versus DL. Um, I, I, I still think that one of the most useful things to use a video laryngoscope for is teaching, and I don't see it used often enough for that, and it, mm. it, it baffles me why it doesn't get used for that, because it's all very well sticking a laryngoscope in somebody's hand and saying, there you go, that's what you do. Work but it out. Sh- surely one of the best ways to do it is to do it in front of them on a TV screen and say, this is what I'm doing. Okay, it's a slightly different technique, but you can show them how to do it in the stepwise way that they should be taught, you know, so they're moving yeah. the tongue gently to one side, and then they're f- identifying the epiglottis, and then they're pulling the epiglottis forward, and then they're putting the tube in sideways. That can all be taught to them nice and slowly, and they can can see exactly what's going on from both ends you know they can see it from the the mouth and then they can see all the way down to the to the um, epiglottis as well and that's something i don't see often enough with uh, a video laryngoscope but that's perhaps another discussion entirely oh and there's certainly something i'd like to see happening on my unit um i, I looked at uh, another study um a few months back um which was similar it's not a multi-center it's a single center study um <clears throat> But they were using McGrath as well. They were using also using GlideScope, which is the really curved blade. The vast majority of the time they were using McGrath. And they had the same, fi- same findings. It made no difference in terms of first-pass success. So um, <clears throat> it'd be interesting to see what happens over the next few years. Um, uh, I certainly wonder how much life there might be left in, um, in hyperangulated um, um, scopes. Uh, I, I suspect the your more standard blade will take over, um, but uh, I think the the um, debate's going to rage on for some years yet. I think, but I certainly do agree with you that it is a potential really interesting teaching tool. I, I think it's um, probably really interesting in terms of its use in in um, crew resource management that people can actually see what's going on the screen and when the view is very, very difficult and you can see, everybody can see that um, the, the, um, achieving your view is difficult, that pe- people can preempt and um, work, work a little bit more as a team rather than only one person, the person looking down the mouth, um, being actually aware of what's going on. <clears throat> yeah, okay. Right, mate, we've been rattling on for 50 minutes now, and I think our audience, if they've, they've probably got to their destination about 30 minutes ago and haven't listened to the last 20 minutes of the podcast anyway, um, or they've, they've run themselves into a ground and they're just exhausted and can't possibly listen to any more, I think this has been very useful. Uh, Gavin and I are hoping to do this reasonably regularly. Whether we are to do it every month or not, I, I pinched the idea from Simon Lang over at the recess room because he and Rob Fenwick are doing a, a fantastic job, um, and I highly highly recommend going listening to their podcast because they are brilliant um i think they've got this a little bit more um uh, off pattern myself yeah slick that's the word i was looking for we will get there we'll get slick i think uh, gavin and i like the sound of our own voices a little bit more than maybe uh, simon and rob do um but um it's something that perhaps we won't do every month but I, I certainly hope we'll be able to do it every other month and we'll certainly try to do it every month if we can so i think that's enough said The podcast itself went on for a little longer than I wanted it to, really. Um, And like I said at the end, uh, it's something I think we need to get a little slicker at because I think 50 minutes is far too long to keep you good people for. So we'll work hard at it. We'll get the episode length down and hopefully we'll produce a podcast that is worth listening to. Anyway, I'll speak to you again soon. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, Find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. Tweet us at CC Practitioner. Find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner. Or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs>